So 10 years ago or so, I felt like my family was complete. We had two biological sons, which I was thrilled with. Little girls scare the life out of me. (laughs) Two sons was perfect. I felt like it was the right number, like we could just, you know, had man-to-man coverage. We didn't have to retreat to zone coverage with the kids. It was a financially manageable sum. And not only that, but by my calculations, by the time that both Caleb and Elijah graduated from college and were independent, my wife and I wouldn't even be 50 yet. We'd have plenty of years to spend together and just enjoy being alone. And it all changed when my wife asked for more kids. And I said, no, no, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with this. I've I've got a good thing going. Everything's working out according to my plan. No more kids. And she said, well, would you pray about it? I said, all right, I'll pray about it. So we began to pray about it. And in my prayers, it just really felt like God was saying, you know, your wife is an amazing mother. If there was ever such a thing as a spiritual gift of motherhood, I'm pretty certain that Jocelyn would have it. She's an amazing mom. And in my prayer time, I felt like God was saying, I can't deprive her of that opportunity to be a mom to more than just two kids. And so I went back to her and I said, all right, Josh, you got it. We can have more kids. And she lit up and she said, all right, I want to adopt. And I went, no, I like making them. And immediately in that moment, my mind was just flooded with all of these questions like, how in the world could we adopt? How could I love a kid that was not my own? I mean, kids in need, they come with such incredible needs. I mean, there's disabilities, and then there's all the emotional needs and behavioral needs, and what kind of effect would that have on my family and on my finances, on my children, on my marriage? There is no way we could do this. No, the answer is no. And so she said, well, would you pray about it? I said, no. She said, why not? I said, because every time I pray about something I don't want to do, God makes me do it anyway. She says, well, then just say yes. I said, no, I'll pray about it. So I prayed, and this was my prayer. I said, Heavenly Father, please give me the wisdom to know how to tell this crazy woman no. (laughs) And the crazy thing was that the more I prayed and the more I read my Bible, the more the orphan, the fatherless adoption popped up time and time and time again. And I got to tell you, it was frustrating and convicting. And then I got to the most convicting of all. James 1.27, you saw it at the end of the video earlier. It says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's frustrating. Did you hear that? Pure and faultless religion? Really? Is pure and faultless religion really caring for widows and orphans? Now, the part about being unpolluted from the world, now that, that part I get, Right? But what in the world does the widow or the orphan have to do with the gospel? I mean, after all, where is evangelism in that? Where is the Bible? Where is scripture and prayer? Where's where's worship? Is this really what I'm aligning myself with when I say I'm aligning myself with Christ? Am I really aligning myself with the widow and the orphan? God's only answer to me was yes. So I went back and I began to search through scripture Passage after passage after passage where it became overwhelmingly clear that God's heart is with the orphan and the fatherless. And if I claimed that my heart was with God, my heart needed to be there too. So I went back to Jocelyn and I said, all right, Joss, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the answer is yes, we can adopt. And again, she lit up and she pulled out this binder and she said, all right, sign here. (laughs) She had our home study already finished. True story, ready to go. 
know, since that day, we've taken in over 10 kids through foster care. We've adopted three, and our family continues to grow, and I have no idea what God has in store for us. But that's my family, at least part of it. You, you can't get 10 people in the same place smiling all at the same time. And when you do foster care, you, your family changes all the time. People ask me, how many kids do you have? And I say, well, there were seven when I left the house this morning. So that's part of them. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take this morning to answer the question, what does being a Christian have to do with the orphan? In order to answer this question, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bible, open that up, flip to it. And in the meantime, what I'll do is I'll tell you a little bit about the context of the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around the end of his third missionary journey. And it was written to the church in Rome. And some interesting things were happening in Rome. There was this fledgling group of believers, and it was mostly Gentile. And the reason why is because Emperor Claudius ejected all of the Jews from Rome a number of years earlier. Uh, and later on, that edict, uh, ejecting the Jews, ended, and they all began to flood back into Rome, looking for economic opportunity and returning to their homes. And in that season, the question popped up, what does the church need to look like? Would there need to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church? What would it look like if they all worshiped together in one place? How, how should this body of Christ look? And Paul's answer, and central to the book of Romans and Paul's understanding of the church, is this theology of adoption. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, read to you Romans 8, and I want you to listen for the context kind of coming out within this passage. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, the idea of adoption would not have been foreign to the people living in Rome at the time. Uh, there were a number of very, very high-profile adoptions that they would have been aware of. The adoption of Octavian by Julius Caesar, or Tiberius by Augustus Caesar. But adoption was something that happened commonly as well. The common forms of adoption are two, really. It was a way that a an aging landowner without heir would bequeath his property, his business, and all that he owned to perhaps a servant or somebody who worked with him or perhaps a, a friend. It was also the manner by which a wealthy landowner who owned servants and slaves would emancipate or free one of those slaves. Now, the benefits of adoption are many. For instance, with adoption, all of the debts and obligations of that adopted individual were canceled. Whatever they owed, whether it be financial or otherwise, it was, it was as if that person had died, and with them, all of their obligations. Secondly, that adopted individual would receive full family membership, including the family name, family rights, legal rights, and citizenship in Rome. They would have access to the estate and they would be equal shares of the inheritance with the natural biological children. And for the adopting family, there was the assurance of continuation. Continuation of the family name, the estate, the family business, the sacred honor 
In other words, that adopted individual was obligated to carry on the business of that family. Can you hear all that coming out in Paul's argument? Can you hear the gospel in that? Because Christ, in his death on the cross, has redeemed us and made us his own. Because of his blood, all of our debts are canceled, and we have died to our old self. It has no longer any power over us. And we've been given a new name. We are called children of God. We are Christians, little Christs. And we have full access to the family estate. We've been given the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We've been given a sacred trust to do the business of God. You see, we're adopted children by God. And because we're adopted, Paul begins right off the bat reminding us that we, as God's children, have an obligation. We have an obligation to the spirit of our new family rather than to live according to the flesh which was enslaved to sin. Now, when we think of sin, we all think about probably the same thing. We think of things like the Ten Commandments. We think of the thou shalt nots of Scripture, right? We think of the misdeeds, uh, the disobedience, breaking God's moral law. And while sin really is all of those things, it's more than that. In fact, this is the way that Paul describes sin in Romans 5.12, just a few chapters earlier. He writes this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. In other words, because of the sin of Adam, our world is broken. And rather than life, death has become the new reality. Rather than love, we fear. Rather than experience unity, we experience loneliness. Rather than peace, we have anxiety. See, one does not have to break God's moral law in order to experience death, the penalty of sin. No one knows this more than the 18 million orphans worldwide who die a little each day to no fault of their own. When death is the reality, then avoiding death becomes every day's aim. Self-centeredness and selfishness, self-preservation and self-promotion become the norm in our world. And i got to tell you that the the consequences are devastating. Being visited generation after generation. Like the foster baby who screams and sucks incessantly all night long because her body craves the drug her mother fed her in utero. Or the teenager who is angry and violent because violence and anger are all he's ever learned when it comes to resolving conflict. Or like the abandoned orphans lying silent in rows and rows of cribs because they've learned that nobody answers their cry of hunger or pain or loneliness anyway. Like the nearly 7,500 cases of child sexual abuse reported in the state of Illinois every year or the 3,000 children in our state who feel alone and isolated and abandoned as they wait to be adopted by a forever family. And then there's the 20 to 50% of kids who age out of our foster system, who find themselves within prison in the first five years of independence. This is what slavery to the flesh produces. This is why I think Scripture ties orphan care to the very heart of God and to the core of our faith. Because at the end of the day, it's the orphan, it's the fatherless that's the most vulnerable to neglect and abuse and injustice and violence and poverty and slavery. 
In fact, if we look through Scripture, we'll find that 42 times in the Old Testament alone does God mention the orphan or the fatherless. It's found in the book of James, verse 127 in the New Testament. The Old Testament, Exodus 22, 22, Deuteronomy 10, 18, Psalm 68, 5, Jeremiah 22, 3, Isaiah 1, 17. Again and again and again, God reminds us that his heart is with the orphan. And if we call ourselves Christians, then our heart has to be there too. We have an obligation not to the flesh to preserve our own life, but we have an obligation to the spirit of our new family to promote life in every single way. Now, individually, what does this look like? It means we put away selfishness and we embrace selflessness. We trade in greed for generosity and giving. We cease to be slaves of sin and we become servants of the least of these. Our lives need to look different. We've been set free from fear. We don't have to preserve our lives. God has done that for us. And only when the children of God choose to live into this new identity, this new calling, will the world around us begin to look like the world that God intended. So what does this look like corporately? What would it mean for us as a church? It means that we've got to be actively involved in reversing sin's curse, pushing against the death that it produces. It means that we've got to be proclaiming and promoting life, not just eternal life, but abundant life everywhere that we can. That's why we as a church partner with dozens of ministries around our area in community impact, supporting them in their ministry to bring life to those that are dying a little each day. It means that we need to be about the work of our Heavenly Father and the ministry of Jesus, the natural-born Son of God, who said His ministry was to seek and to save that which was lost. Church, if we belong to Christ, we need to get busy about His business. And I gotta wonder, what would it look, if, look like if our church really got busy caring for the orphan and inviting others into the family of God the way that we've been invited in? I got a sense that the church would be a growing, heterogeneous collection of people representing all ethnicities and cultures and social statuses, ages, genders, backgrounds, and lifestyles. Be a big melting pot of people from all over the world and all over our culture. And that's, I believe, what God has in mind. And it's definitely what Paul has in mind when he writes this in Galatians 3.28. He writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, at the very, very beginning, God's redemptive plan for creation was that we would all be united under him. Every tongue and tribe and nation, every people group welcomed into the body of Christ. And if that's God's vision for the kingdom, that has to be God's vision for the church. And if that's God's vision for the church, then it has to be God's vision for our families. This is why I love introducing my family to people. I love the experience that I get when they look at our kids and kind of scratch their heads and go, huh? There was one occasion when we were heading home from Hot U one day, me and my six kids, and they were all wearing their Hot U t-shirts, and we had to stop by the store. And so we ran through the grocery store really quick, and as we approached the checkout line, the cashier looks over and she goes, wow, you guys on a field trip? Is this a daycare? It's <laughs> like, no, no, these are all my kids. She goes, wow, are they all like brother and sister? It's like, well, of of course they're all brothers and sisters. 
She goes, he looks so different. I said, oh, you were asking if they're all biological. She goes, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, no, of course not. The two gringos are adopted. <laughs> Boy, she looked confused. But I love explaining to people how my family came together and how God has adopted us, brought us on that journey, and how God's love is open to everyone. And what an evangelism opportunity. That's exactly what God has in mind for our families and for our church and for his kingdom. So when people look at our church, shouldn't they look at our church and have that same experience? How is it that all of these people can come together in one place, rich and poor and broken and blessed, citizens, foreigners, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, Middle Eastern, African, Caucasian, how is it that they can all worship in one place with such harmony? How is that possible? There's only one answer. We're all adopted. We're all only here because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ that he redeemed us and made us his own. Church, we have an obligation to the children of the world to help them understand the great love of God and to welcome them in not only to his family, spiritually speaking, but here in our midst into his church. My friend Michael Pepin was welcomed into an awesome family through the foster system. What we're going to do is take a little bit of a break in this message. I've invited Michael to come on out and pray for vulnerable kids around the world. And he's going to take about 10, 15 seconds to do that. And then he's going to pause and give you an opportunity to reflect on that prayer and to pray a prayer of your own, asking God to care for vulnerable children, for the orphan and the fatherless. And maybe ask God, what your role is in that obligation. Michael, would you pray for us? Heavenly Father, we lift up to you the millions of children around the world who are abandoned, orphaned, and without families. We lift up to you vulnerable children who may have families but face abuse, neglect, and hunger daily. We ask you to be their protector, their provider, and their comfort as they wait for someone to rescue them. We ask that you would use the church to bring them into loving families, and more importantly, into the family of God. We ask, Father, that you would use us, your children, to do this work. Give us the courage and strength to hold out love and life to these children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Michael. <clears throat> you know, when I came to realize that as a child of God, I had this obligation to the orphan, it didn't solve all of my problems in my head. I was still asking myself, how in the world could I do this? How could I possibly love a child that wasn't my own? How could I afford to do this financially? What effect would this have on my family? What do I know about helping hurting kids? Who was I to think that I could actually do this? And in my prayer time, there was one answer that came from God clear as day. You are a child of God. You see, following our obligation, Paul reminds us that we have this new identity. We're no longer slaves to sin and death. We're no longer controlled by the flesh. We're controlled by the Spirit of God. And because the Spirit of God lives in us, there's nothing that we can't do. 
Here's what Paul writes in Romans 8, 14 through 16. He goes on to say, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Isn't that beautiful? In every culture around the world, every language has its own special word for daddy. There's Dada and Papa and Pai and Baba and Isa and Yeba and, of course, Abba. These are not formal titles like Father. Rather, they are the, the babbles and cries of an infant who knows just two things. One, they have a need. And two, there's one who meets that need. That word Abba, to me, is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture because within that word, is perfectly captured who we are as Christians. When we come to Christ, God doesn't take away our needs, our neediness. We're still as broken as ever before. The only difference is, when we cry out, we have one to cry out to. Let me elaborate on this. First, there's a need. See, children don't cry out unless there's a reason, right? When I was a, a young parent, we had just Caleb, and I remember he was kind of fussy as an infant, and there were nights when I just had no idea why he was crying, and so I would walk up and down the driveway with him, just kind of patting him and rocking him and trying different holds and everything. And one day as I was doing that, my neighbor Joe, he was a grandpa, we called him kind of Grandpa Joe, Grandpa Joe came over to the fence, and he leaned on the fence like this, and he says, warm, dry, fed. I said, pardon me? He goes, warm, dry, fed. I said, all right, Joe, you're going to have to explain that. He said, babies are pretty simple. They need really just three things. They need to be warm, they need to be dry, and they need to be fed. If they're crying, chances are it's one of those things. Solve that problem, you'll have a happy baby. There were a few other things that kids needed. But at the core, Joe was right. Our kids didn't cry out unless there was a problem. There was a need. And as their father, it was my job to meet those needs. But the problem is that Infants aren't the only ones that cry out. Children cry out, and teenagers cry out, and adults cry out. Because we all have needs, and when those needs don't get met, we have a problem. We have physical needs like food and water, air and sleep, emotional needs like safety and security and comfort and peace. We have social needs like family and friendships and community and belonging, and we have identity needs to be known, to fulfill a purpose, to be loved, to feel important, and to know that our life has a meaning. And when those needs aren't met, more often than not, what follows is inappropriate behavior, right? Fighting, acting out, disobedience, deception, manipulation, stealing, violence, addiction, self-harm, infidelity. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? It's true. Hurt's contagious, and brokenness just multiplies. The National Institute of Justice tells us this, that being abused or neglected as a child increases the likelihood of arrest as a juvenile by 59% and as an adult by 28% and for violent crime by 30%. That's staggering. Broken people cry out begging for love, attention, safety, security. But those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, those of us who call ourselves children of God, we cry out, Abba, Father, because we know there is one who meets our need, who hears our cries and is attentive to each one of them. 
Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. He writes, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. You see, as children of God, we do not have to run after the things of the world. We know that that's not going to produce the life that we want anyway. Instead, we can just simply ask God, our Heavenly Father, who hears us. When I can't, He can. And when I'm weak, He's strong. And when I'm needy, my Heavenly Father is more than enough for everything I need. And so when I'm woken up in the middle of the night by my foster kid who's wrestling with abandonment issues and attachment issues for the third time in the single night, I cry out, Abba, Father, give me the patience and the strength to love her the way that you've loved me. And when my adopted teenage daughter pushes me away because for her love is more foreign than fear and pain, I cry out, Abba, Father, give me the grace and tenderness to love her the way that you've loved me. And when a broken and abused middle schooler comes into Genesis and acts out in defiance and disrespect, I pray, Abba, Father, make me wise and gentle to love this kid the way that you've loved me. I gotta tell you that caring for hurting kids has done more to shape me into the image of Christ than anything else in all of my Christian life. There's just something about joining Jesus in his ministry of suffering that helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live in the spirit. You see, when I do that, I'm forced to cry out, Abba, Father. I'm forced to live beyond my own means, me and my family. Each time we get a phone call from DCFS asking us to take in a new child, we bring that opportunity before our family, and we pray about it as a family. We discuss it. And on one occasion, we received a phone call asking us if we'd take in a little boy. We'll call him Robert. And they said, Robert has been in a kind of a, a tough, tough home, and he's been through a couple of foster homes already, and it won't be easy, but he needs a family. Would you take him? Now, Robert was seven at the time, and so was our son, Elijah. And Elijah said, Dad, I'm not so sure I could do that. He's probably going to have problems. He's probably going to be, you know, angry. He's probably going to fight with me. He's probably going to be really hard to share with. Dad, I don't, I don't know if I have what it takes to do that, Dad. And so he said, all right, Elijah, well, what do you think we ought to do about it? And he said, well, we should probably pray about it. I said, good answer. Let's pray. So that night... I think it was a Wednesday, I went off to Genesis, and they went off to Awana, and at the end of the night, as my wife was preparing them all for bed, she said, Elijah, how'd you do tonight? Were you, were you praying about Robert? And Elijah said, yeah, I, I did, Mom. And so Jocelyn said, well, what did you feel God was telling you about it? And he said, well, I think God wants us to take in Robert. Jocelyn said, really? Well, why is that? And Elijah said, well, God told me that if we didn't take in Robert, he might never know Jesus. And if Robert comes to know Jesus in our home, I think I can put up with a little bit of fighting. Robert came into our home, and he stayed with us for about eight or nine months, and he and Elijah became best friends. Robert came to Jesus, and he learned to love his Bible. We've learned as a family that comfortable living conflicts with our identity as Christians. 
As Christ followers, our lives have to be uncomfortable. If they're not, we will never cry out, Abba, Father. And if we don't cry out, Abba, Father, we'll never realize just how blessed we are and how abundant the love of God really is. You know, I really hope that we as a church don't take this message lightly. I hope we choose to put ourselves so far out that we have to cry out, Abba, Father, and learn just how sufficient our Heavenly Father is. And I want to take a moment right now to pray again for us as a church. Only I'm not going to pray. I'm going to invite my friend Ayana to do it. Ayana's a student in our high school ministry, and she was adopted about five years ago from Ethiopia by an amazing family. And so Ayana's going to pray for us as a church. And once again, she's going to pause towards the end of her prayer, and she's going to give you about 10 seconds or so to join her in that prayer and to pray on your own. Ayana, would you pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for adopting us and making us your children. We thank you for blessing us and giving us the opportunity to bless others. We ask that you would use us to care for orphans and vulnerable children. Teach us to be selfless and generous and to serve the least of these. Remind us to cry out, Abba, Father, on the behalf of the orphan. Make us more like you as we go about your work. Help us to become the type of church you want us to be. May the world see you in the way that we love and give and care for the orphan. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ayanna. And I came to realize that this obligation was mandatory and that I didn't have to worry about who I was or my ability to do it because I was a child of God. I began to wonder, okay, how is this all going to work out? How is God going to provide for us financially as a home? How was I going to do this with my time and my resources? I still had a million unanswered questions. And so Romans 8, 17 is just an incredibly encouraging verse. Here's how Paul concludes. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In that verse, we're reminded that we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance in this life as well as the next. We're guaranteed eternal life, but we're also promised abundant life. We have the assurance of salvation and the glory of heaven, but then the very reality that God shows up day in and day out for those of us who join him in that ministry of suffering. That's why Paul can write this in Philippians 4.19. He writes, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Church, when the children of God Go about the business of God. So goes the wealth and all of the blessing of the kingdom of God. We have complete access to his estate in this life and an inheritance in the life to come. And so when we do that, when we step into that ministry of loving the orphan, God joins us in amazing ways. When we began this journey 10 years ago, I truly was baffled on how God would help us raise $35,000 to $40,000 for our adoption. 
And we raised it in about three months. And I was convinced that I didn't have what it took to care for a child with special needs. Especially when we got a call from DCFS saying, there's a baby that's, that was born without oxygen for the first 45, 50 minutes of her life. She's got cerebral palsy and a number of other disabilities. She'll probably never walk. She'll probably never talk. She'll never feed herself, but she needs a family. In fact, she might not even make it, but will you do your best to care for her? My immediate answer was no, no way. My wife said, would you pray about it? You know what happened. (laughs) And two years later at her checkup, the neurologist said that there is no way in the world that we could convince him that that was the same girl that was born two years earlier if he were not the doctor there and saw the whole thing play out. Not only does she walk and talk and feed herself, but uh, she is our most energetic kid. And if you know my daughter, Jada, you'd be amazed at the miracle God did in her. And every day I'm reminded that that's part of the inheritance. We get to receive the fullness of God's blessing. When DCFS wanted to expand our foster license and they asked us to take in more kids, I was convinced that our home couldn't hold them all. And so God gave us a bigger house with seven bedrooms and plenty of space to take in even more. I have no idea where that's going to end. And when my life got really busy with things here at the church and grad school and other responsibilities, I had no idea how I was going to care for my family. And so God sent us Rick and Cindy, an amazing couple from an organization called the Forgotten Initiative, whose mission is to care for families as they care for vulnerable children. And Rick and Cindy come over regularly. Cindy comes over every single Tuesday night, and she cooks us dinner. She cares for my family. She reads the kids' stories. They come over and watch our kids and send us out on date nights, and they pray for us and encourage us, and they are such a blessing. And there are those moments when I don't think I could just do this anymore, when the burden of caring for hurting kids is just too much, when I'm frustrated that my plan didn't play out the way that I thought it would, and when I wonder if everything that I'm doing, everything that we're doing as a family is really making a difference. And then one of my foster kids comes to know Jesus, and I have the privilege of baptizing them. Or we receive a text message from a birth mom who says, thanks so much for taking care of my kid and inviting me to your church. I found a church in my neighborhood just like yours. When I wonder if I'm making a difference, I'm reminded I'm making an eternal difference. But that wouldn't be the case if I wasn't willing to let God turn my no into a yes. If I wasn't willing to suffer and to learn just how powerful that Abba prayer is, I'd never know all these blessings if I wasn't to join Jesus in his suffering. So let's return to the very beginning in James 1.27, where it all began for me. Oh, and instead of reading James 1.27, let me do this. Let me give you a different translation. You might call this the PPT, the Pastor Pete translation. If you want to put a smile on the face of God, our Heavenly Father, get busy with his business, caring for those that the world most often forgets, those that more often than anyone need the love and protection and provision of God. And don't get caught up in the world either or the worldly way of life, but rather show them what it really means to be a child of God. As we close, let me ask you a question. 
what would it look like for you to take seriously this obligation? What would it look like if our church stepped into that ministry of suffering with Christ? What if we really believed that pure and faultless religion was to look after the widow and the orphan? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. That's easy for you to say, Pete, you're like a pastor. You're like super dad and you married super mom, right? This is easy for you. This is your calling. But I got to remind you of a couple of things. One, it didn't start with a yes for me. I began this journey kicking and screaming. And on my own, I don't have what it takes to do what God's called me to do. It's only because I am a child of God and I lean into him. So trust me, if I can do this, you can do this. But also be reminded that not everybody's called to the exact same thing. Not everybody's called to adopt. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of ways to answer this call and to respond to this obligation that we have to join with the heart of God in caring for the widow and the orphan and the fatherless. So there are people here in each one of our campuses that are being called to adopt the one of more than 100,000 children in our country alone that are waiting for a forever family or the 18 million waiting worldwide. There are people here that are being called to foster care, to provide a loving home and a safe place for one of the more than 16,000 children in our state alone. And there are those here that are being called to safe families, to take in children before they become a statistic, to lend a hand to a family that's struggling but truly wants to make it. Maybe you're being called to respite care through an organization like the Forgotten Initiative, the organization which Rick and Cindy come from. An organization where you can support a family that's caring for vulnerable children. Maybe you're being called to give an hour a week or so to an organization like Kids Hope or to be a CASA worker in order to help a kid who might otherwise fall through the cracks. Maybe you're being called to give financially in support of a home like Mooseheart or Lydia House. Maybe you have old items that can be donated to the Fox Valley Pregnancy Center or another organization. Maybe you have airline miles as a businessman that you can donate to a family waiting to go to Haiti to pick up their sons. Maybe you're a doctor or an attorney or a dentist or a tutor or a mechanic or a carpenter or a piano teacher, and you can lend your professional skills to a family that's busy caring for vulnerable children. At the very least, if you call yourself a child of God, can you cry out, Abba, Father, on behalf of the orphan and on behalf of the families that are caring for them? Yeah, I think it's very fitting that next week our church is going to gather together to make Christmas presents through Operation Christmas Child for 10,000 orphans around the world. That's pretty cool. Don't miss this opportunity. It's not a suggestion. It's an obligation. And it's an opportunity to find that our Abba is more than enough to meet all of our needs. Yeah, I'm so grateful that we get to announce the beginning of this new ministry at Christ Community, Homes of Hope. At each one of our campuses in the atrium or lobby, there's going to be people from Homes of Hope waiting out there to talk with each one of you about ways to plug in and how to care for the orphan, and they'd love to chat with you. At the very least, on those tables, you're going to find prayer cards, an opportunity to pray for actual children within our community who are waiting for a forever family, vulnerable kids who need your prayers. Take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, Abba, we are so grateful that you have made us your own, that you have adopted us as your children, that you've given us this great obligation, this opportunity to join you in this ministry. 
and to care for those who are lost and hurting. We pray that as we take this cup, as we take this bread, that you would strengthen us to go and be the people you want us to be, to go and do what you have us to do. God, may we as a church reflect your kingdom. May the world see your love in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.